Good morning. Well, I'm glad uh, Jay ended up talking about being a member of the church because I realized the importance of that last spring and went through the whole course and it was, it was, I mean, it was honestly enjoyable to go through and I ended up becoming a member of the church and then leaving for seven and a half months. So uh, some of you guys um, know me personally, probably most of you here know me personally. Um, some of you know that I was preaching over at uh, a church down in St. John for the last seven and a half months and uh, um, so that's kind of what I'm drawing from here, um, just preaching from a sermon that I gave over at that church as well. Uh, and I guess in, ad- in advance, I would apologize to those of you who might be thinking that, oh, well, seven and a half months, this is some veteran here, this will be great. Uh, <laughs> sorry if you're stuck with a mediocre preacher. But um, in all seriousness, when I came to the end of that seven and a half months at First Baptist Church, I got to this point where I had to basically ask myself this question, and that was, what was the message which I would want to leave First Baptist Church with? What was the message that seemed to me to be, to be most pressing for their needs? Because I was leaving in the next couple weeks. And so I thought pretty, pretty immediately, well, they, they have a need for a pastor, right? That's the whole reason I was preaching down there is because I was filling the pulpit while they try to look for somebody. Um, and they still had not found anybody yet, so I knew it was a need of theirs, that they needed uh, a solid biblical elder or pastor. And so I decided that would be my message. I preached to them about the need for an elder slash pastor and the need for them as well to be people who are, are biblical Christians, right? The need for the congregation to be faithful, just like the elder and pastor that they're looking for, right? And then, after I'd preached that sermon, I had another week I had to preach, because for some reason, I I think, well, my original plan was, oh, I will just talk about this and really hammer down on it for the last two weeks. But after that first week of preaching about it, I was, I kind of realized, you know, I, I think we've we've covered this. <laughs> I, think, I think they generally understand the topic. They got the gist. So I got to this actual last week, and I was here thinking, well, I already gave the message that would have been my last message, basically. So what do I preach about now? But fortunately, I realized something specific about this message I gave to First Baptist. Yes, it was pressing for their needs, their immediate needs at the time. They needed a pastor. I wanted to help prepare them for that, help them know who to look for. But that was something that was specifically for their needs, right? Not every church is looking for a pastor. And I realized that there is something further that not just First Baptist Church needs, but every church needs. There is a message which I have found myself desiring to speak over uh, that I think every Christian needs to bear to mind. And it's something that's so obvious, but I feel like it is not thoroughly understood. And that message is this, that Christ is central. Christ is central. Something that, you know, is not just important because, you know, I wanted to talk about it, and I really want people to hear what I have to say. It's important because the Bible makes it clear that it is essential, that Christ is essential. 
And I would go a step further. I think you could say this main idea for today uh, in this way. Christ and his gospel are central. In other words, the person of Jesus Christ and the story of his life, his death, and his resurrection should be central. And tell me, let me tell you something else as well. Truly, it is essential for godly living. To live life in the way that God desires, it demands that we acknowledge the importance of Christ and that we respond in light of that. And I think one of the most valuable passages that we can look to in understanding this gospel of Christ and the centrality of him is Luke 24, which is why we find ourselves in that passage today. And that ended up being the same sermon that I shared with First Baptist as well last time, the last time I preached with them. So with that being said, we will jump into today's passage. And it's okay if we take a little long on this one. Um, I already talked to Jay how I'm used to 45-minute sermons to an hour-long sermon. And he told me, and this is a quote, he says uh, that if we went to the 45-minute mark, we wouldn't die, per se. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we'll be okay. Just bear with me. The first point for you guys to know today is Christ is central to the Scriptures. Christ is central to the Scriptures. I'll give you time to write down that. Mostly it's just an excuse for me to get some water. (laughs) Now hopefully it's already apparent to you, just by reading this passage, as Casey was reading it, Hopefully it's apparent to you that this is the case, that Christ is central to the Scriptures. But if it wasn't, we are going to go and explore the passage a little further. You see, in Luke, this conversation takes place right after Jesus appears to the apostles and disciples, right? He had just died a few days earlier, and then word had started going around that was saying that he had rose from the dead. And then Jesus, she, boom, he appears in front of the disciples and apostles in the room that they're in when they're talking about all this stuff happening. And he assures them that it's himself, that it is he himself who has rose from the dead. He shows them his hands, he shows them his feet, and he even eats food in their presence to show them I'm not just a ghost, right? I'm not just a spirit. I can actually consume food. I'm Christ risen in the body. And it is right after this that the author Luke picks up in verse 44. It says, Then he, talking about Jesus, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, every, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Jesus is telling the apostles here that what has transpired, the fact that he has died, the fact that he has rose from the dead, And the fact that he's now standing before them, these are the things which Jesus had told them in the past would happen, right? He had said on multiple occasions that he would be delivered up into the hands of the Jews, and then he would resurrect on the third day. And now he's basically going, I told you so. Only in this case, the I told you so, it is an occasion for rejoicing, right? It's an occasion for for peace. I mean, it's so refreshing, The Lord had spoken, and here now, as Jesus is speaking, we see his word has come to pass. So there's that assurance which is given. 
But as Jesus continues speaking in this passage, if you're following along, what we find is not just that Jesus himself had spoken to these events taking place. That's not the only reason for assurance, but part of the reason for our assurance, and Jesus makes this clear, is that the scriptures as a whole testified to such events, right? Specifically, if you are looking at the phrasing he uses here, he uses this phrase, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, uh, perhaps going throughout Luke with, with Jay a couple years back, perhaps uh, he went over this and I just have memory loss, I don't know, um, but uh, we are still going to break down this because uh, while I know some people may understand this phrasing here, uh, I think it's necessary that we go over it a little bit further. Because Christ is saying it's these that must be fulfilled, right? Moses, or the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Most of us here know who Moses is, the man who God used to deliver the Hebrews out of Egypt. We know what the law of Moses is, right? The Ten Commandments would be a part of that, the, the commands that God had given to his people through Moses. We're all pretty familiar with a, a prophet, right? That, that, that other part of the phrase that Jesus uses. It is somebody who speaks on behalf of God, right? Uh, Hosea would be an example of this. He's the same uh, author of the book that me and First Baptist Church were going through as I was preaching there. And of course, most of us are familiar with the book of Psalms. These are all terms and names which we have heard and we're familiar with. But why does Jesus say like this? Why these specific names? Well, it turns out the law and the prophets and the Psalms was a phrase which was used amongst the Jews, which was Jesus' people group, right? It was used amongst them to refer to all of the Old Testament books. And this phrase was a way in which the Jews categorized the Old Testament. They separated the different books of the Old Testament into basically three sections. So you had, number one, the law. That would be the first five books of the Old Testament, what we'd call the Pentateuch. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were written by Moses, and they were the books which more specifically lay out the law which God was giving to his people. So that's, that's the law. That's the first section. And then you have the second section, which is the prophets. And the prophets is in reference to the books which are, wouldn't you know, written by the prophets. This title, the prophets, it consists of the major prophetic books like uh, Elijah, Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, or not Elijah, excuse me, <laughs> Ezekiel, I Isaiah, Jeremiah, something like that. Uh, it also would refer to uh, the smaller prophetic books, something like Hosea, Amos, Malachi, and more. And then, of course, you get to this last section, the Psalms. The Psalms could also be called the writings, because this whole section includes uh, a lot of the wisdom literature of Scripture, stuff like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon. And the book which composes the most hefty chunk of this category is Psalms. So when Jesus mentions the Psalms here, he's really referring to the writings category, right? All of these wisdom books. So you have all of these books together. And I'd also make a side note, uh, the, the prophetic category that includes other books which we may not immediately register as a prophetic book. There were books which were written by prophets. So like First and Second Samuel, 
uh, that would be included in that category. And when you combine all three of these categories, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, effectively what you'll find is that in essence Jesus is talking about the whole Old Testament. And it is about the whole Testament that Jesus says there is writing about him which must be fulfilled. I mean, that's a bold claim. Coming from anybody else, it would seem pretty narcissistic, right? I mean, to some, for somebody to look at the law, the prophets, and the Psalms and say, yeah, that's about me. I mean, that's pretty intense. But fortunately, this is the Son of God who's speaking here, right? Literally, he is God in the flesh, and he's the same person who just rose from the dead after he had lived a life where he taught authoritatively over the Scriptures. So the point is, is if anybody is going to have a right and, and, and a just claim to say, this is about me, it's going to be the guy who taught about it authoritatively, died, and then came back from the dead. Jesus is very truly at the focus of Scripture. And he expounds on this point as he continues speaking in this passage. But this ties directly into our next point. Point number two is this. Christ is our hermeneutic for Scripture. Christ is our hermeneutic for Scripture. Now, I know uh, some of us are probably looking at that big word there and we're going, Herman who? Like, who's that? But if you'll bear with me, uh, we'll go over that and I'll explain what I mean by hermeneutic. But first, looking at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. In other words... Effectively, what we're getting from this is that the disciples' understanding of Scripture was previously not as it should have been, right? Or at least it was not holistic enough. Not until Jesus taught them and imparted upon them a thorough understanding of the Scriptures. Stuff like this, it really calls to, to my remembrance uh, passages in the Bible that speak to similar things, right? So, for instance, uh, Austin was mentioning 1 Corinthians earlier. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul even says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So in other words, to understand the spiritual things of God, including his word, his scripture, it is necessary that we be indwelt with his Spirit, his Holy Spirit be in us, rather than the natural person, who in this case is, is a des- just a different name for the unbeliever. Uh, one commentator I was reading had mentioned uh, Psalm 119 in reference to this verse. Psalm 119 at one point says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Right? There's this recognition by the psalmist that he needs the Lord to allow him to understand the Word, to open his eyes that he may behold these wondrous things. And the Bible often makes this apparent, that to understand it is a blessing which only truly comes from God. It is by his grace that we comprehend his Word. 
And fortunately for us, God desires to give us understanding. God is a faithful God and wants to give us this understanding. And so he does so here as well with the apostles. Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures. But now the question is, what were their minds opened to? Well, it comes in the form of the following statement. When Jesus says in verse 46 and 47, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Specifically, I want you to pay attention to the wording that he uses. Thus it is written, is what he says. You've probably heard phrases like this in Scripture before. You know, you you hear people say, it is written blank. It is written this. It is written that. And it's always in reference to what? Scripture. It's in reference to Scripture passages. So typically, whenever you hear something like this phrase, for instance, as it often happens, or excuse me, as it often happens in the New Testament, when people use this phrase, it is meant to quote the Scriptures. I mean, think of Jesus when he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? The devil says, well, you're hungry. Just turn this, this rock into bread and eat it. And what does Jesus say in response? He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. So he is referencing a specific passage there. But tell me, maybe, maybe rhetorically, but tell me, <laughs> What is Jesus quoting here in verse 46 through 47? What book of the Bible is that passage found in? There is none. There is no specific Old Testament verse with that specific wording. So what's going on? Why does Jesus say it in this way? Why does he reference Scripture like this? It's not that, God, or that Christ is mistaken on what the Scriptures say. It's the fact that he is talking about the whole nature of Scripture. He is saying that the whole of Scripture, all of it, speaks in this way. He's talking about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, every bit of it. He's saying it's written like this. If you, if you pay attention to the word thus, and, and thus it is written, that word thus is the Greek word hutas. It essentially means in this way or in this manner. And it is followed by the Greek word gagraptai, which means it is written. So when Jesus is talking specifically about the scriptures as a whole in this instance, he is saying that it is in this manner that scripture is written. Scripture is written in this way. And that word gagraptai, which, which again we mentioned it, it means it is written, it's in the, the perfect tense. I have my, my brother to thank for a lot of these, this, you know, fleshing out the Greek here. He took the Greek class. Uh, but yeah, gagraptai is in the perfect tense. You're used to probably past tense, present tense, future tense. The perfect tense essentially denotes a past event that has present and ongoing consequences. So Jesus' point here is that the manner in which Scripture is written has consequences which are present and ongoing. The Scripture presently and ongoingly speaks in this way, that the Messiah shall come, 
that he shall suffer and die, and that he will resurrect from the dead on the third day, and that following that his name shall be proclaimed to all the nations for repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is the manner in which Scripture is written. So that's the point. Jesus is not meaning at all. He's not, he's not thinking at all that he's quoting a specific passage. He's talking about what is the Old Testament saying altogether. If you read through it, what is it truly talking about? And by now I know perhaps some of you are just waiting for ages now to hear about what actually is this word hermeneutic. What does it mean? A hermeneutic can be understood as a method or principle of interpreting Scripture. So it's the method or principle that we use to understand accurately the meaning of what God is saying in the Bible. So when I say that Jesus is the hermeneutic for Scripture, what I'm saying is that the principle we are to use in understanding the Bible is to factor in the fact that Jesus is the focus of it. He's the center of it, just as he makes clear here. You will find written throughout the whole Bible passages which are either explicitly or implicitly talking about Jesus. If you uh, caught, I think it was the, the morning Christmas Eve service, so not the Christmas Eve service, but the actual morning church service that Jay was speaking at. I might be mistaken on that. He was talking about Genesis 3, and that contains something we call the Proto-Evangelion, meaning the first gospel, where God is cursing the serpent after it tempted Adam and Eve into sin. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking ultimately of Christ coming to crush the serpent, to crush death, which is the consequence of our sin. In the book of Exodus, you see the Passover when God is sending plagues towards Egypt, and then he sends judgment upon all the firstborn of Egypt. And before doing so, he tells the Hebrews to put the blood of a slain lamb on their doorpost because this is what will allow them to be spared by God. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." The people who are covered with the blood of the Lamb shall be saved. Reminds you of someone, right? Just as for the Christian to be covered by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, is for him or her to be saved. Later on, the Israelites, they would put to death innocent lambs as sacrifices for their sins, as they await the Messiah, who some of them probably didn't even realize would be slain for their sins. Even the account of David and Goliath, I don't want to expend this point too much, but the account of David and Goliath, do you know that the Hebrew talks about Goliath's armor as being scaly, like having scales, similar to that of a serpent? And what does David do? He crushes the head of the serpent of Goliath. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, they all point to the coming Messiah, either directly or indirectly. And this isn't to say that you can just look at every single detail, like little tiny detail in the Old Testament, and 
think it's pointing to Jesus. I'm not saying that, right? You can't just point to the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who wanted to know the angels and say, well, well, that's Jesus right there, right? So it's not the fact that every single little detail is actually about Jesus secretly. There's a hidden meaning. But the point is, is that throughout the whole course of the Old Testament, we can recognize what the thrust of its message is ultimately getting at. It's getting at the fact that man is separated from God by his sin. God will send a Messiah for his people to reconcile them to God. And this will be accomplished by the Messiah's life, death, and resurrection upon the third day. Christ is central to Scripture, and very truly, He is the one who makes sense of it. He's the fulfillment of all of it because it all revolves around Him. And now that Jesus brings this to light as well in Luke 24, that He is to be essentially our hermeneutic, for the Word, it is imperative that we understand His Word in that light. And in light of that fact, I want to give you your third point for the day. Christ should be central in the heart of the believer. Christ should be central in the heart of the believer. Verse 47 through 49 says this, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, I, th- th- this, this verse, I think, is, uh, there's a few maybe details that we would have questions over, but it's a little more straightforward. Jesus admonishes his disciples here. He says, My name shall be preached among all the nations, and you are witnesses of these things. In other words, you will preach my name. I shall be the message which you proclaim to all the earth. And then he tells them to to wait until they are clothed with power from on high as they receive the promise of the Father upon themselves. Basically, Jesus seems to be talking about the Holy Spirit here, this whole being clothed with power. The Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples, and they shall be clothed with power as they share the account of Jesus. This would be primarily the day of Pentecost, which you heard Jay talk over in his first, or some of his first sermons um, over the book of Acts. Jesus says, you preach. He's telling his disciples this. You go proclaim me. I'm to be central to your message, but not just your message, to your heart and the heart of the unbeliever, to the hearts of all the world. I know that's quite a way to sum that up, but it's ultimately what's taken place. Christ is commissioning the disciples here to preach the message of what they've just observed. They've just observed that he died, resurrected, and now stands before them in accordance with the Scriptures. And he made clear to them how the Scriptures testify to that. And now he's saying, you're witnesses. You've seen this. And so my name shall be preached to the rest of the world. They are to preach Christ crucified. And the message that they preach, which is the gospel, is to possess Christ as its focal point. 
just as the whole Bible possesses Christ as its focal point. Christian, is Christ your focal point? Is he central in your heart? Moses himself was speaking about Jesus and testifying about his gospel in the first five books of the Bible. The prophets were speaking about Jesus in their books. The Psalms and Proverbs and other wisdom books were all speaking about this coming Messiah. The apostles preached Christ crucified to all the world just as he commanded them to do right here in this passage. All of the God-breathed scriptures speak of Christ. They focus on Christ. What does that say about how you should regard him in your life? Do you know Christ? Do you love him? Is he central in your heart? Are all your affections, your focus, your mind, your heart centered upon the Lord? Or is he just a a cherry on top? Is he the foundation of your joy and your happiness, or is he just something nice to have in your life? Because for the Christian, he's to be central. I don't mean to rabbit trail too long, but we have so many people today who are quick to say yes to these questions. They'll say, yes, Jesus is central, but they live their lives with their own heart at the center instead. They'll passionately proclaim the importance of Christ on a Sunday, and then they'll whisper their desires for sin the rest of the week. They think it's enough to acknowledge Him as Savior, but to keep themselves as Lord. You know, I hear about believers, I mean fellow Christians, who who will say stuff like, you know, I want to live a little. I want to sort of put my faith on hold so I can experience what life has to offer apart from Him, right? They want to live a little, but they don't realize that the truth is they don't love even a little. They do not love the Lord that they profess to serve. Now, I'm not saying that if you find yourself desiring these sorts of things, that you aren't a Christian. I'm not meaning to incite uh, unnecessary, unhealthy doubts, right? Christians get led astray at times. Sometimes desires can be misplaced as a Christian. But nonetheless, the, the fact is the same. It's a problem if this is the state that we're in. It's a problem. And we are not rightly loving or serving our God when our hearts are burning for these things rather than Him. So examine yourself, Christian, because there's no one between here. Christ is either central in your hearts, He is the love of your life, or He is inferior to whatever has that place instead. Christ demands that we be wholeheartedly committed to Him, loving Him. There's a reason why the New Testament writers are constantly pointing the eyes of the reader back to Jesus. You can very clearly see that the disciples, they they obeyed what Jesus had commissioned them to do here. In Colossians, it says, All things were created through him, being Jesus, for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Romans says that we are saved by God 
in order that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Hebrews encourages us to look to Christ as we run this race of life. And Paul says at another point to the Corinthians, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was the thing he desired to know amongst his people. Over and over and over again, the Scriptures point our eyes towards Him. Because how could we be conformed to the image of Him who we do not even look upon? Whom we do not even value or cherish? Christian, wherever you look is where you're going to go. Whether that's running in a race, whether it's driving your car, or whether it's living this life right now, wherever you look is where you will find yourself drawing near to. And if you're at this place where your eyes are not set upon this lovely, merciful, forgiving Lord and creator of the universe, if you're at this place where you do not value him in the manner that he deserves, then repent. Turn away from your sin and turn your eyes to the Lord and pursue him. Recognize the rich treasure that he is and let him be your foundation the one who is central in your heart. Just as he was central in the hearts of the apostles and disciples, he was central to the Scriptures. He's central to our very salvation. We would not be claiming the title of Christian if it wasn't for the fact that he came and did what he did. And to any potential unbeliever here who might be watching today either in person or maybe it's on the live stream, If this Christ is not central in your heart, if he is not esteemed above all else, you don't believe in him, or perhaps you do believe in him, you think he exists, but you value your sins more than him. You value your job more. You value your money more. Or maybe even your family more. If he's not your God, then you're not his child. And the scriptures say that the penalty of such sin is death. Namely, a spiritual death in hell. But if you come to the Lord today and you believe in the testimony that is proclaimed here in Luke 24 and is proclaimed throughout scripture, if you believe that in accordance with the scriptures Christ died on the cross for our sins and that in accordance with scripture he resurrected on the third day, that all who believe in him would be saved and have eternal life, then you too will be forgiven. You too will be brought near to this Christ. And you will be able to have pardon and in in place of the sin and the life that you used to have, you'll have eternal life to live with the Lord the one who is central. And with that, let's bow our heads in prayer, please. Father, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to preach your word. And God, for the opportunity to learn from your word, uh, to be taught by it, and also I pray pierced by it, God, that our hearts would be struck by the truth of it. God, we thank you for it. And we ask that 
as we go on throughout today and the rest of this week, Lord, that you would just uh, help this message to, to sink in, Lord. Not my message, not necessarily the words that I speak, but the message of your word, Lord, the message of your gospel. God, by your grace, we pray that we would just uh, really understand and comprehend just the fact that Christ is central, the fact that he's central to the word, that he's central to our salvation, that he should be central in our hearts, and he's central to all of creation. And God, I pray this not just for this congregation, but for myself. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that we would not live our lives with hearts for ourselves instead, with our desires being centralized and being esteemed and focused on. God, I ask that you, by your grace that all of us would recognize your worthiness to have that place. May we esteem you and may you be central in our hearts. Uh, provide grace and proper conviction to all who need it here. Lord, that we would praise you and thank you for the fact that you are the God that you are and that Christ is the God that he is, Lord, the Savior that he is. And uh, I pray for gentle correction, Lord, for anybody who uh, is at this place where Christ is not at the forefront of their minds and their hearts. Lord, your words could do more effective things than our words could ever do. And we know it's your hand that saves and it's not our own. So we pray that you would act and you would correct and you would guide and you would save. And that it would all be to the glory of Christ. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.